This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. You're listening to the Faith 2020 Podcast, helping you see 2020 clearly through the lens of faith. Now here's your host, Michael Ware. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. I am your host, Michael Ware, and I'm glad to be with you for another episode. I'm excited about this one. We have not just an amazing guest uh, in David French uh, of National Review, Time Magazine, founder of Frenchism, and we'll we'll talk about that on the episode, but uh, we also have big Faith in 2020 news to cover, probably the biggest Faith 2020 news of this cycle so far, and I'm excited to uh, to share that with you and break it down. I uh, want to express a note of gratitude for our listeners. It's been wonderful to see more and more people downloading this podcast, tuning in every episode, and we hope to continue to grow this thing. And so we would urge you to, you know, share about this podcast, encourage others to subscribe. If you're not subscribing already, just get on it. I mean, especially if this is your third or fourth episode, I mean, you, you might as well just get it automatically. Uh, you can support this work uh, by signing up for my newsletter, which kind of helps uh, me fund all of my sort of uh, analysis and kind of writing around uh, faith politics in 2020. My newsletter is at reclaiminghope.substack.com and that's you know eight bucks a month and directly you'll be getting every edition of the newsletter you'll also indirectly be uh be helping out uh to fund this podcast and so we appreciate that and then leave a review on itunes and i love reading through all the reviews and, and that's fun and then you could always just let me know what you thought about the last episode on Twitter, or let me know what you want to hear in future episodes. I've been hearing the calls for uh, a look at Andrew Yang, and I promise you uh, that is coming. Uh, But I want to hear what else you guys are interested in. And I'll be honest, your calls for Andrew Yang coverage here led me to look into him a bit more, and he's He's a little more interesting than I thought he was. So, so I, I mean, I uh, your 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 requests uh, prompt me to learn more than I knew before, and I I appreciate that. Look, before we talk about the big faith in twenty twenty news, I just want to you know catch us up on the state of the race. Uh, in our last episode, we were able to talk about. The debates, the debates had just wrapped up. We got an episode right out to you. And a lot of the takeaways that we raised on that uh, on that episode have proven to be true. Cory Booker has seen a, a significant, not a massive, but a significant bounce in the polls. Uh, and I think his team has done good work to follow up on that debate performance. Uh, Booker, especially in South Carolina, is running a campaign that I think will bear dividends for for him. 
He has, in my view, the the best staff in South Carolina. Clay Middleton is just a top-notch staffer, and Booker's just been spending his time there. In the last couple of weeks, uh, Senator Booker gave a signature uh, speech, a major speech that his campaign gave top billing at Mother Emanuel on racism and gun violence. Uh, and it, it was it was a it was a good speech. It was a strong speech, and so I think Booker. Uh, has had a good couple of weeks. We'll see how he continues. I also wouldn't be surprised to see Beto rise in the polls. He he returns to the campaign trail uh, this week after taking time off to be in El Paso after the shooting. He returns with a speech uh, on on Thursday, so probably after this episode will air. Uh, and and we'll, we'll see if that is... Uh, turning point for his campaign. Uh, They certainly are billing it like it will be a turning point. Then I just think the the last thing is Senator Harris has seen a real drop that I don't think is just a blip. Uh, I think it's a real thing. We've seen reports that her campaign is pivoting in Iowa. And if her Iowa State Fair Talk uh, speech is any indication, she's trying to pivot to a more inclusive and uh, lighter messaging. She was talking about how, you know, when we wake up at 3 a.m., the things that keep us up at night are about the same no matter who you are. She was expressing her disdain for the narrow demographic categories that pollsters put us in. Uh, She was talking about, you know, what unites us is more than what divides us. And look, I I just think that's not a pivot that her opponents should let her take so easily in this race. It's one that, you know, we talked on this show she did not need to launch that busing attack in the first debate. She she was doing well enough that she would have been considered the winner of that debate from the first hour alone. She would have been able to raise all the money she needed, maybe even more, uh, out, out of uh, just the first hour of that debate. But when she let off the second hour with such a strong attack and such a calculated attack on, on Biden... I think that and the fallout from it uh, hurt her. I, I think for uh, I think it it made sure for uh, the people who are aware of it. And to be clear, you know this was June, so you know I was tuning in, but uh, the the mass of voters who are voting in the Democratic primary are not following every dip and turn in this race. But for the voters who are paying attention, if Biden was your first choice. It's much less likely that Harris is your second choice uh, after after that kind of head on head on attack. And so that's a real problem. Harris has a lot of money uh, in the bank and in the in the campaign uh, war chest. She is, as we've said on the show, I think the most strategic candidate in the field. Uh, She's not going quietly into the night either, but she is seeing a significant drop in some national polls, even dropping down to 10 percent. And it's something that, uh, you know, uh, folks can't ignore. I'm sure her campaign is not ignoring it. 
So now that you're caught up on the state of the race overall, let's cover the big faith 2020 news. And uh, that is that we have our first faith hire of this cycle, national faith hire of the cycle. And that's Mayor Pete Buttigieg's campaign hiring Reverend Shauna Foster. Now, there is much to say about this hire. Let's talk first, acknowledge just the fact that the fact that the position has been hired at all is a unmitigated good thing. It is a very good thing that a Democratic campaign in August, which is, I think, you know, right on time. July, August is right on time. Most of these campaigns launched in you know, February, March, April. You're not hiring a faith outreach director before you hire uh, a press secretary or a communications director. Uh, but you also don't want to wait until November, December. August gives you enough time for, for in this case, Reverend Foster, to do some real planning, do some real work, lay some real groundwork before votes uh, take place, and to build from there. And so it's encouraging uh, that the position has been filled, uh, and hopefully it will encourage other campaigns to do the same. As we've discussed, Booker's uh, advertising or, or uh, you know, has a job opening up on their website for a similar position. We expect Joe Biden's campaign will hire a faith outreach director. But let's see if other campaigns jump in now after seeing Mayor Pete do it. Uh, I'm particularly interested whether uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren's campaign will, will have a faith director. And so kudos to the Buddha Judge campaign for for taking this step. I think it's going to uh, I think it's going to be a, a, a real boon for, for their campaign. It's important to have the role filled. I do want to talk about Reverend Foster uh, specifically. So uh, Julie Zosmer at The Washington Post is the one to break the story. Uh, she gives us some background on Foster, who I've heard Reverend Foster's name before. Wasn't unfamiliar to me, but we don't know each other personally, you know, just just for you know disclosure's sake. Uh, but Zosmer writes, uh, this 35-year-old pastor, and, and Julie noted in the piece that uh, Reverend Foster has, uh, quote, a lot in common with Buttigieg. Both are millennials, LGBT people, and military veterans. Uh, Shauna Foster is quoted in what I thought was a funny line. She said, if we want to split hairs, he's Episcopalian and I'm Unitarian Universalist. And so, you know, I, 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 I thought that was funny. Uh, Reverend Foster says quite a bit that's worthwhile and I think interesting in this article. Uh, she notes Buttigieg's um, capacity and her interest in reaching out to mainline Protestants, which I've been very clear was a missed opportunity for the Clinton campaign. And then I think, you know, Pete is one of the one of the a few candidates in the Democratic primary who have a real potential to test the notion of whether um, a concerted mainline Protestant outreach can be a fruitful thing for Democratic campaigns or, you know, the counter narrative to that is that the mainline is just so hollowed out that it's not worth the resources. I think we need to test that. And I think in a crowded field of, you know, 20 some odd candidates uh, th- that it's worth testing out for someone like Pete Buttigieg, who's you know clearly in this race, but is going to need support from uh, wh- wherever he could get it in order to in order to win this thing. So I thought that was encouraging. 
Reverend Foster also pointed out her intent uh, to reach out to minority faith communities. In the article, she mentioned uh, the Sikh community, uh, Baha'is, Native American spirituality. It's important to note that uh, one of the moments of notoriety and one of the key sort of focuses of activism for Reverend Foster was around Standing Rock. And so she has experience there. Uh, You know, it's just worth pointing out that, you know, a faith outreach job is in terms of demographics, a big job. You're talking about 70 plus percent of the country that religiously, uh, religiously affiliates. Uh, I think in an ideal world, uh, Yes, uh, you would be able to do faith outreach directly and in a in a way that was respectful and in a way that truly was about faith outreach, not just about showing uh, uh, signs of diversity or sending a message about the role of Christianity in America, but actually about treating uh, different faiths seriously. The, the The challenge has just been resources. If, if you're dealing with 70% of the population, uh, ostensibly, you know, 70% religiously affiliate and, you know, 90% of that 70% are Christian, your job on a campaign is to win votes and to, uh, and to, to, to win election. And so it's going to be interesting to see how Reverend Foster prioritizes that, how Mayor Pete's time is used in faith outreach and to what extent it's used uh, and what that looks like. And then the final thing I note with Reverend Foster, you know, she's an, she's an interesting choice. And so in some way it makes a ton of sense. Uh, She is, shares a lot in common with Mayor Pete. She also, uh, was a organizer and leader within the Poor People's Campaign. And we've talked before about Pete's apparent, um, really apparent admiration for Reverend Barber and the Poor People's Campaign. Mayor Pete, you'll remember, showed up at a protest and didn't speak, but just wanted to show his support for a Poor People's Campaign protest in uh, D.C. And so I think this hire is a extension of, of that, especially from my conservative friends, and I, I do, you know, hear this, uh, you know, there's been sort of the expression that, like, of course, a Democrat hires a Unitarian Universalist who was an atheist just a few years ago uh, to run uh, faith outreach. You know, my, my primary response to that right now uh, is that this is a we're in the middle of a Democratic primary. And that's what Mayor Pete's focused on. And at the end of the day, though, there are certainly is knowledge and so, sort of uh, a social aspect to any outreach job. You know, if you're a traditional Catholic, you're more likely to have success reaching out to traditional Catholics than someone who's not a traditional Catholic. Um, at the end of the day, any faith outreach director is going to be responsible for reaching out to faith communities and to people with perspectives that differ from their own. Uh, the real test of the job is how nimble you are and how able you are to meet people who are not like yourself, who don't share the same uh, exact theology as yourself, uh, who come from different backgrounds and that's a real test of the job. And that that test can be met 
by anybody. And so I hear the sort of the sort of criticism that this is like a caricature of uh, who the Democrats would hire to, to do faith outreach. Uh, I'd say, hey, just remember, faith outreach isn't just about you and people like you. <laughs> there are America is religiously diverse. And there is a not insignificant segment, as we've seen with the Poor People's Campaign itself, that Reverend Shauna Foster is uh, not just well-equipped to reach out to, but she's been a part of that movement. And so I think that's valuable. If Pete gets into a general, then, yeah, I think he should. they should probably hire some additional staff that might have a little more experience working in different communities. But I'm not I'm not overly concerned by that, because we, we need to see Reverend Foster in the job. And I think the, the main thing right now is that Mayor Pete's campaign is the only one that is doing faith outreach out of headquarters officially with a staffer who's uh, who, who's given that responsibility. And so I wish Reverend Foster well. Uh, it's going to be so interesting to follow the follow her uh, Again, she she noted in the article kind of her first priority, the first job she'll have is helping Mayor Pete uh, and, and the campaign sort through the various invitations that they've received from faith groups and faith media, etc. And so that's going to be a real clear indication of how Reverend Foster views this role, views her responsibility, views how the campaign should approach uh, faith in the primary and and uh, in this election, because we're going to know where Mayor Pete is doing interviews and what events he's showing up at. If it's just Unitarian Universalist conventions, uh, then you know, then we'll have a we'll have a good indication that the you know role is is uh, that that Reverend Foster is not able to uh, or, or not interested in sort of going outside of her the the lanes that she personally has been in. If we see Pete doing broad faith outreach, then. We'll we'll know that Reverend Foster is in 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 this whole hog, <laughs> so well, we're just gonna have to watch them. And you know what? Just one last thought to leave you with when it comes to the Buddha Judge campaign and this hire of Reverend Foster, which is that you know ultimately the the the, the staff are an extension of the candidate. Ultimately, this staffer represents how Pete views the faith community. And so, you know, I've seen some uh, some rumblings that, you know, Reverend Foster, the, the hire of Reverend Foster indicates that uh, Democrats generally and, you know, Mayor Pete don't understand how to reach out to the faith community. And I, well, what I want to say to that is, if that's true, it really doesn't matter who they hire. <laughs> like, yes, maybe someone could have convinced Mayor Pete to hire someone uh, who fits your vision of what faith outreach should look like. But it doesn't seem like that's what Mayor Pete wants. I mean, at the, and we've talked about this on the, sh- uh, on the show before. M- Mayor Pete, uh, his faith rhetoric should not just be taken on face value. It's strategic. On many levels, and his faith outreach is strategic on many levels. 
he is clearly trying to preempt Republican attacks that he is outside of the mainstream, that he's going to be antagonistic towards Christianity because he's gay and in a same-sex marriage. And uh, like that that's clearly a part of this whole thing. And it just needs to be said explicitly. He sees those attacks coming. Uh, he, he wants to preempt those. And he wants to be able to say, look, the problem isn't that... I'm antagonistic towards Christianity. If anything, I'm just antagonistic towards your version of Christianity. Uh, and look, there are some real problems with that with that message. I, I've said before uh, the the open antagonism against Mike Pence, especially given their history of working together, doesn't make sense to me. He's so magnanimous in other uh, situations. The, the fact that he's uh, sort of taken to questioning Mike Pence's faith uh, indicates to me that I'm right about his strategy. <laughs> it, it really is about being able to turn back uh, some of these some of these attacks. I don't think that's all that's going on. I do think Reverend Foster's hire shows that uh, Buttigieg views the Poor People's Campaign uh, and that that segment of the faith community as a way to expand his vote into African-American communities, which he's had a difficult time doing so far. I think that the foster hire on, on a very you know transparent level, I think shows that he wants to reach out to progressive people of faith who can support his agenda in, in full. And as I said before, this is a primary. He is not a front runner. You know, this is a primary. What we're going to see is if these other candidates, higher faith advisors, we're going to see if they have different visions for what faith outreach should look like. And that'll be part of the primary process. Faith voters will be able to look at that and say, well, gosh, does Unitarian Universalist pastor who's also an activist who was an atheist three years ago and believes that Christianity has taken up too much of the discussion in this country, especially when it comes to faith and politics. Is is that the, the direction I think faith needs to go? Or do some of these other candidates indicated by their own words, their own actions, and also the people they hire – represent more of where I want to see faith go in this country. And that's that's all going to be part of the primary process. But the, the, the main point I want to make here is that this is not Reverend Foster. <laughs> you know, she went through a hiring process. She was hired to do the job. One would think that Mayor Pete or someone he's entrusted to make hiring decisions was involved. And Reverend Foster is going to be an extension of what Mayor Pete wants. And if she's not, then the the Buttigieg campaign should address it. But 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 Mayor Pete's responsible for the campaign he's running. One of the most dangerous positions that we can get in when looking at these things is to separate out the staff from the candidate themselves. No one's electing the staff. No one's electing Reverend Foster. No one elected me. So if if you liked me in the faith role, all that credit went to. President Barack Obama, like there's no separation. Like ultimately he was responsible for my hire. Uh, I was working on his behalf. Uh, and, and so that, that's how things work. It's it's like a it, not, not even a package deal. It, I'm just 
serving the person I'm working for. Reverend Foster is just going to be serving the person she's working for. And th- and that's how this thing needs to be decided. All right. Happy to cover that. Interested in folks' questions, particularly about the Buttigieg campaign, taking this step. So feel free to tweet at me. I'll read your questions on the next episode and respond to them. And uh, always want to be responsive to listeners. Tried in that overview to respond to some of the things I've seen online. Uh, but, but there's always more uh, to cover. Up next, we're going to have a conversation with David French, and I'm going to tell you a little bit more about David when we get back, and then we'll head right into our conversation. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. Excited to have David on the show. David is really our first conservative on the show. Now, yes, we've done mostly, we've talked to mostly journalists, so it's not it's not that big of a first, but uh, you know we've been focusing on the Democratic side of things so far because that's where there's a live primary and where most of the activity is right now. Uh, but we want to have David on to talk a little bit about the Republican side of things and also to get his insight on uh, Democrats and David is just one of the most insightful, uh, interesting voices out there right now. Now I must I have an interesting history with David, which I, I mentioned at the top of the interview. I didn't mention a couple things because I, I didn't want to flatter David too much when when I was on the line with him. But as I mentioned on in the interview, uh, David and his wife Nancy basically wrote a book every presidential election cycle about why evangelical should vote for whoever was running against Barack Obama. <laughs> so, so, you know, when I was on the 2008 campaign, there was an evangelical case for a John McCain book. When I was on 2012, evangelical case for Mitt Romney. Uh, and so that was like primarily how I knew David French. Uh, and, you know, as people on the conservative side of things were, you know, t- giving me reasons why they wouldn't support Obama. Uh, it, it was it was like David's book being read out loud. And so I knew David that way. Obviously, I disagreed with him on a whole bunch. But even then, I didn't get a sense that he was, you know, a huckster, uh, certainly. And then when I left government, I got to know David a bit more. We ended up at some meetings together. And that's when, you know, my respect for David grew into you know, something deeper, you know, a deep respect and appreciation for him. Again, we, we disagree uh, a whole bunch politically. We agree generally uh, when it comes to religious freedom, particularly the religious freedom of institutions. And David is someone who represented key organizations that I love that have meant a great deal to me personally, and that I think contribute a great deal to uh, their communities and the nation. And that David stuck by them and represented them pro bono. Uh, And so the religious freedom space is full of a bunch of people who make money off of it, who drive up fear and anxiety, but do nothing to relieve the pressure, do nothing to offer sort of a way forward. The fact that David is not one of those people, uh, the fact that David seemed to have principles and fight for them and not just play politics with them is something that stuck out to me. And 
it's one of the reasons why I, uh, I, I, I don't take too kindly to sort of pot shots at David, even though he um, certainly is wrong about a lot of things. <laughs> But, uh, hey, he's not wrong about too much on this episode, at least. I'll give him that. <laughs> and, uh, and by the way, he thinks I'm wrong on a whole lot, <laughs> too. Um, so uh, without further ado, th- this conversation with David, I think, is uh, is good. It helps lay out the landscape on the Republican side. And w- what I wanted to do is just lay out a bit of why someone like David, who has serious problems with Donald Trump. Also, it's not whole hog for Democrats that there's that there's actually a choice other than loving Donald Trump and loving uh, Democrats. Uh, and David, I think, does a good job of explaining some of those dynamics. All right, here it is, the interview with David French. Well, this is the Faith 2020 podcast, and I am uh, really happy to have my friend David French on uh, uh, with us. David, thanks so much for joining. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, we have uh, so much to talk about. And, you know, it's it's been funny every time the presidential cycle seems to come around. You and I have some kind of connection. Uh, uh, Unfortunately, from my perspective, uh, in 2008 and 2012, it it was it was because you and Nancy were writing like the case, the the case against Barack Obama, the evangelical case against Barack Obama, which, you know, great reads. But, you know, I, I I, I wasn't uh, whole hog in agreement, but uh, <laughs> 2016 we had a we had a, a bit more overlap in our perspective. Uh, and now 2020, you're on this podcast, and we're able to talk about some some some, some good issues. So thanks so much for for joining. Um, uh, you know, where I'd love to start our conversation is. Uh, on the Republican side, uh, on this podcast so far, we focus mostly on Democrats because they have a, a an active uh, uh, primary, and it looks like Donald Trump is going to sail to the Republican nomination without a serious primary challenger. And so, my first question is just, why do you think that is? With all of the with his approval ratings in the low forties or high thirties at various you know times, uh, uh, why haven't why hasn't a more viable challenger stepped up? Yeah, I think there's a really simple answer to that, and that is because he is wildly popular with Republicans right yeah. now. You know, there there is he is not popular with independents. He is obviously loathed by Democrats, but he has done a really good job of fighting for his base, or at least having his base perceive that he mm. is fighting for them. And so, you know, I, I'm reminded of um, the old uh, poem, Charge of the Light Brigade, where <laughs> it's uh, cannons to the right of them, cannons to the left of them. And there's this line in there that someone had blundered, sending yeah. them into that, that ga- sending them through that gauntlet. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I think I think right now that any primary candidate who and there are many in the Republican ranks who are deeply many elected officials in the Republican ranks who are deeply uncomfortable with Donald Trump. But they're getting this cannons to the right of me, cannons to the left of me <laughs> sense if they charge into that. And the person who will have blundered, they believe, would be them right. <laughs> for, yeah. for doing it. So I think that it's a really simple answer, which is that nobody right now sees a path. Now, 
that doesn't mean that there couldn't be conceivably some events that could change that, but they'd have to come here pretty quickly and they'd have to be pretty dramatic for that dynamic to change. And, and then the other thing that I would say is often you will see an incumbent lose support of their own party when the party feels that they're vulnerable, even if they're, they would otherwise, uh, even if they would, you know, say otherwise support the, uh, the incumbent, if they perceive the incumbent to be really vulnerable, that might mean that there are cracks that maybe an ambitious politician could say, hey, I've got a better chance to win the general. But I think one side effect of the shocking win in 2016, which surprised everybody except sort of Donald Trump's core, core base, was that now Republicans are kind of inoculated against bad news, hmm. especially bad polling news. So there's a lot sure. of it that's just like, nah, you know, that's what they said before. That's right. Yeah. Do you, do you foresee uh, Trump any major sort of landmines that that Trump will have to navigate moving ahead with let's stick with sort of Republicans or do you think he's he's basically locked up, you know, 90% of support among Republicans on election day and can focus on, you know, Rust Belt independence like he did in 2016. Well, you know, there's this really interesting aspect of what's happening with Trump right now, which is he's not reaching out to anybody. I mean, really, you know, he's (laughs) he's doubling down on his base. He's doubling down, doubling down. And he's you know, he's uh, I think there's a a, a kind of a received conventional wisdom that he just kind of has to hold serve. And if he holds serve, he's going to win and he's actually going to. If he, to the extent that he's going to get sort of new voters, some of the new voters he'll get are some of the people who, like me, didn't vote for him in 2016, but are very conservative. Yeah. So I know a number of evangelicals who did not pull the lever for him. I mean, some who are, you know, quite prominent, like Eric Erickson has said that he right. intends to vote for Trump in 2020. So there's a number of people who didn't vote for him because they didn't trust that he would deliver on judges, for example. Right. Or um, they they thought that he would lead us into some sort of foreign disaster, you know, it's a like a disaster in a foreign war or something true, like true, that. True. Right. Yeah. And and so that since that hasn't happened and he's now kind of a known commodity in the office and the Democrats have moved left, I think that he's going to pick up at least some votes from actual conservatives who didn't vote for him in 2020. Right. And, you know, uh, potentially, you know, do you see like McMullen voters uh, returning back to Trump? Well, there's kind of two kinds of McMullen voters. Not that, not that there were, not that there were many, right? right. Okay. So, so there was the very conservative McMullen voter. So somebody who is, was pro-life, um, pro-religious liberty, fiscally yeah. conservative, et cetera, sort of down the line conservative, traditional conservative, and they voted for him because they, as a general rule, they just flat out didn't believe Trump's promises that he was going to be uh, govern as a conservative or govern in a way that was traditionally Republican. And they just didn't, they didn't like Trump's character. So that voter is the most likely voter to go for Trump because they, they will have liked at least some aspects of his actual, you know, they'll have liked most of his policies, for example, the kind of voter that will not the Mullen vote, McMullen voter that will not go for Trump is the more, um, uh, you know, I don't know, I don't, uh, 
I think Tom Nichols, for example, voted for Hillary, but maybe more Tom Nichols-esque. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm more socially liberal um, or at least socially moderate, uh, conser- uh, socially moderate Republican who's not necessarily super all that ideologically conservative and can find, you know, if not a home, then sort of like a place to rent in the Democratic Party. Yeah. And that, that, that voter, but man- you know, when you talk about splitting hairs, uh, when we're when we're talking about splitting splitting them up well in constituency, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah, yeah. That, I, I'm sure there's some you know enterprising college student who's done that as like his undergrad <laughs> undergrad thesis, but uh, right, but right, yeah, I exactly. think that's right. So, so you covered like the Eric Erickson types, folks who, uh, and I, you know, in my in my own words, folks who have been pleased with what he's done, you know, on judges. Uh, on uh, on sort of the social conservative side and who are just sort of um, either numb to or were never really all that concerned with sort of the breaches of civility that Trump represented too well. Right. And I think that there's some, I, I, I think folks on the left love calling, you know, Eric Erickson a uh, uh, hypocrite because they love calling uh, conservatives like Eric Erickson, a lot of things, a lot of the time, <laughs> and, and they generally get it. But what I was really, what I'm really hoping to talk with you about, and really hope my my listeners will come to sort of understand, is uh, you know you're in a position where you were uh, critical of Trump during the campaign, remain critical of Trump now, uh, and yet you haven't become a Democrat. Uh, well, what, what's, um, I think there's a, there's a, a lot of like people can't map that, you know, it, it's, right. it's Trump voters and everybody else. Um, uh, can you help understand, uh, uh, can you help folks understand how you could be deeply troubled with president Trump and also not, you know, giddy to vote for the democratic nominee, especially de- uh, depending on who, who it turns out to be. Yeah, right. So, and to be clear, I am not somebody who's going to vote for Trump. Right. So uh, I have no intention of voting for Donald Trump. And and let me just sort of frame it this way. I just reject the notion that it's a binary choice. Mm. I just, I just reject it. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the best ways to ensure that you continue to vote for uh, unsatisfactory candidates is by, or that one of the best ways to ensure that we continue to have unsatisfactory candidates is to vote for unsatisfactory <laughs> candidates. Yeah. And, and I just reject the notion that whoever the primary voters serve up to me, I'm going to have to vote for them or the other party. I, right. I, and so I, I kind of have a simple two part test and both parts of the test are non-negotiable. One is, uh, I I'm only going to vote for a candidate whose character is, I believe, um, that, that, that has a character commensurate with their office. Yeah. So, you know, if somebody's running for dog catcher, I'm going to have a lower character <laughs> threshold than if somebody's running for president of the United States, which are, where I think the character of the person in the office is incredibly important. So that, number one, they have to have a character commensurate with the requirements of the office. And number two, they have to share, at least to some degree, Not no, there's no perfect alignment, just like there's no perfect person, but share at least to a great degree, my political values. Right. And so Donald Trump in the, in 2016 flunked the character test (laughs) as badly as anybody has ever flunked the character (laughs) test. 
And on his on his political positions, I, I didn't really know what to think. I mean, right. he would say sure. some things that you liked and some things that I didn't like. And and going into 2020, he's worse than I even thought he would be in office from a character standpoint. I mean, remember, we, did, we didn't even know about the, you know, porn star payoffs. Right. Yep. <laughs> and that's just one of 500 yeah, yeah, things. Right. Yeah, that's just uh, uh, one one bullet item on a list. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you've had additional an additional uh, racist comments. You've had, I mean, uh, you know, we can go through the list. Yeah, but sure. He continues to fail the character test. And frankly, honestly, for all those conservatives who say, oh, he's just been, you know, people actually seem say most conservative since Reagan. Yeah. yeah. And I'm thinking, what are you talking about? Right. Um, there are things that I like. I mean, I like the majority of his judicial appointments. Yeah. Um, I give his tax cuts sort of a C plus, maybe a weak B minus. Yeah. Uh, I think they should have been more oriented towards families and less towards corporations. Mm. Yeah. His foreign policy, uh, I mean, it, by the end of 2017, I was pleased with the campaign against ISIS, which Obama had begun. I mean, Trump finished the campaign that Obama began. Yeah. But moving into 2018 and going into 2019, I really am leery about his foreign policy. I, I despise the deficits. Mm. And quite frankly, I put a great store, uh, a, a great amount of importance is, does a president at least try to be an instrument of social cohesion and national unity. Mm, yes, yes. I, you know, I think that's important. Right. Like a lot of people say, no, it's just words. Words don't matter. Only policy matters. That's such, that's so ridiculous. I, I spent eight years in the Obama, during the Obama years, watching Fox News right. talk <laughs> ad infinitum over whether Obama would use the term terrorism or radical Islamic terrorism. Yeah, right. Even though he was bombing the terrorists, it was still a fatally flawed policy unless he used the term Islamic terrorism. Now, there were good reasons to have that argument. Sure. But then to now turn around and say words don't matter yeah. is a little bit of whiplash. Yeah. So words matter, uh, attempts to try to become an ex instrument of social cohesion, of national unity. These things matter. You'll never fully succeed. Yeah. You'll never fully succeed. But I... I I tend to think with his populist platform, his relatively non-interventionist foreign policy so far, the level of peace and prosperity that we have had, if he had put down the phone and actually intentionally, mm. relentlessly reached out to the other side, I think we would be uh, in a, a position of a lot less negative polarization right now, or at least somewhat less of negative polarization, sure. and, yeah. and he would probably have a higher approval rating. Yeah. Are there... Sort of responding to that, are there Democrats in the field that stick out to you as, you know, I, I think there's a lot of discussion. Every time David Brooks writes a column uh, uh, about sort of uh, there's this big criticism of uh, the idea that Democrats should be appealing to never Trump Republicans. I, I, I don't I, I don't buy that. I, I don't get why you wouldn't want to test whether some Democrats perform better among some kinds of voters than others. Uh, and I think never uh, uh, Republicans and independents who aren't going to vote for Trump seem like a pretty good, like a pretty good <laughs> demographic to test. Uh, are there are there Democratic candidates that stick out to you, particularly on any of the themes or, or issues you've just raised? Are, are there any that seem like like better to you than than the rest of the field? I mean, there there's obviously. 
After the first debate, you know, there seemed to be a lot of uniformity in the candidates. The second debate began to flesh out some of the differences pretty, you know, so we had a real, there was a real debate the second time around. And, and so uh, I would say, I would say this, I think that, um, number one, I kind of have some sympathy for those Democrats who say, come on, we don't need to be reaching out to never Trump Republicans because, you know, quite frankly, we found out in 2016, that's not a big pool, (laughs) (laughs) but, but there is a, there is a pool that's really, really important. And that's, that is the pool of working class white voters that gave the Midwest to Democrats for many years until 2016. And so that is a pool of voters that, Hey, yeah, forget me. Don't, don't, don't waste your time trying to reach me. (laughs) But there are voters that you had that you do not have. And it seems to me that that is a community of people that are, is worth reaching. And now I understand the argument that if you, I don't have to have them anymore, if I can sort of super mobilize my base in some of these Midwestern cities, there there is that argument. I get it. But I, I would say that, that, uh, there are, there are some candidates that I think can kind of go both and, or maybe, maybe at least one, I mean, thinking that on paper, on paper, I think Joe Biden is a guy who would allow Democrats to kind of have their cake and eat it too. I think you would see, um, you, uh, Biden ha- is polling very, very well with black voters, for example, in the primary, I think he would likely get better black turnout than Hillary Clinton did. And I think he'd likely get some of the white working class voters that Donald Trump got. Yeah. And if that's the case, you know, in, in, in an interesting way, he's almost kind of lab engineered to beat Trump, <laughs> but that's all lab that's work. Right. That's, <laughs> that's, exactly that's all right. in, yeah. that's all in theory. Uh, you know, we've already seen Joe Biden run two presidential campaigns before this one and the results were not impressive. Right. So um, he's had some staying power at the top of the polls that I think a lot of people thought he wouldn't have, yeah. but I think he's sort of the obvious answer. Um, in theory, there are other, you know, um, among the top, uh, amongst the top four, um, I don't see any others between Harris, uh, Warren and Sanders. Although I modify with Sanders, I think he would have some white working class appeal that maybe Warren mm-hmm. and, and Harris would not, um, you know, but again, in theory, I would have said before all this started that that Beto would sort of have this opportunity to fill that, you know, young, inspiring sure. lane. But he's he's faltered. Um, so I, you know, outside of that, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, Amy Klobuchar, I had some thoughts right. about, but she she, make, she was cast. You know. Um, she was cast almost immediately as almost this Cruella Deville character, <laughs> which seemed so out of out of character from her public right. persona. Yeah. Um, but you know, so those first national impressions can kind of make a difference. Uh, so yeah, I mean, there are some in general. And look, and I, I will say this. Um, I will say this in in the last two debates, the person who put their finger on the sort of broader cultural malady. was of course the person who said the dark psychic forces of collective hatred. (laughs) Yeah. She did put her finger on something. Now we wonks and she, she also just trashed wonks, but we wonks call that dark psychic force of collective hatred, 
negative polarization. Right. Yeah. It, it's a real thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, you know, that's, that's this never Trumpers uh, view. It, it is interesting to see Booker, and I don't think he's taking it from Marianne Williamson. I think this is just sort of who Booker is, but he's, he's kind of Marianne Williamson light when it comes to sort of kind of, loosely spiritual kind of language, a sort of spiritual diagnosis of our politics. And then I've been tremendously interested to see, you know, what I think we're going to start to see some of the uh, more uh, popular Democratic candidates trying to take some ideas and some some plays out of Andrew Yang's playbook, uh, who you know, I, I don't think is viable by any means, right. but digging around his his website and, and seeing sort of um, he is tapping into, uh, I think, an urge for uh, a, a, a politics that isn't so wound up in uh, attributing awful things to the opposition, you know. So, uh, I mean, I was and just to move the conversation a bit. I checked out his uh his page, his website page on reproductive rights. And he strongly supports Roe, considers it uh, an issue of bodily autonomy. But there was no language on his website like you'd find on many other Democrats' websites about Republicans trying to drag women back to the 18th century or um and so it was just it was just i mean as a pro-life person it was refreshing to to see messaging that didn't you know castigate my views um but i also think there's kind of like uh this is what i believe this is but but i'm not my life isn't oriented around the partisan strife that politicians want my life to be oriented around Oh yeah, I mean, I, I the only reason I didn't mention Andrew Yang is just uh, because I, I, I don't see him as having a realistic right. chance. Which, yeah. of course, you know, I mean, my gosh, if you'd asked <laughs> yeah. if you'd asked me in October, I mean, in in August of 2015, is Trump going to be president of the United States? I would have said no way. <laughs> but you know, I will say this about Yang: he sort of radiates. I like you. Yeah. Like he, yeah, yeah, if there's yeah. a vibe that he radiates, it's like, I have affection for Americans. I love this country. I love the people in this country. I've got a lot of great ideas that I think will make your life better. Like that's the whole vibe that he radiates. Mm-hmm. And, and Hey, I appreciate it. I don't agree with a lot of his proposed solutions, but by golly, you can have a worse outlook towards your fellow Americans than he yeah. does. I mean, he just seemed sure. to have this view that says, and I think that Booker goes for that sometimes. But also, man, you know, if you're going to talk about to Republicans about Booker, they're going to remember that he was just vicious in the Kavanaugh fight, yeah, just right. vicious. Yeah. And so a lot of that, you're they're kind of, you know, people like me are looking at that. Uh, are, are you for real on this? That's right. And Biden, yeah. Biden kind of has this hail fellow well met sort of personality. That a lot of people who are close to him just adore the guy, just adore the guy. Um, Partisan Republicans are going to remember the put y'all back in chains moment from 2012. Yeah, Yeah, sure. Um, Now, that don't I don't think that will matter one whit to an awful lot of voters. Right. Um, But but yeah, I think that I think that for sure. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, But if you're talking about a guy who sort of radiates 
like just basic affection for all Americans, you're not going to find anybody more than Andrew Yang. Yeah. Uh, David, I, I guess just one last question. And, you know, especially now that Frenchism is a thing, apparently, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we, we've talked a lot about sort of significant problems on both sides. And it doesn't seem like you're looking to this presidential election as like, uh, the way out of our current current political mess. Like I th- I th- it sounds like you've kind of foreclosed off that uh, uh, sort of that we're going to elect the perfect leader kind of thing. And so, right. what's your? I just uh, what's your? How would you like to see our politics, our national politics, our national political conversation develop over the next five to ten years? You know what what is. Um, well, you know, if you had your way, how would our politics look look different a decade from now? Yeah. So I think we kind of, and this came up in the Frenchism debate, for which I'm sure a lot of your listeners are going, what, the what debate? <laughs> but uh, basically, which is a, a fight in the right between approach, uh, uh, different approaches on the right. Uh, Sora Bamari is a editorial page editor at the New York Post, wrote a piece called Against David Frenchism, where he sort of posited <laughs> three elements, uh, uh, three political elements, cultural elements that I disagree with him on. And I was sort of the avatar of the guy who disagrees with him. And that was number one, politics is war and enmity. Number two, as a consequence, civility and decency are second order values. They can actually be, um, they can actually be harmful rather than helpful because you're in a state of war and enmity. And then number three, that liberalism itself, classical liberalism, small L liberalism, it has planted some of the seeds of the present American cultural crisis from the standpoint of a social conservative, that that liberalism itself is partly to blame or maybe mainly to blame for the cultural predicament America finds itself in. And I disagree with, with, on all three points. <laughs> so what I would say is I would like an American system that rejects the illiberalism on the right and the left. Mm that rediscovers a commitment to the Bill of Rights uh, and that re- and that haltingly uh, in, in haltingly, it will be imperfect. We're always going to be kind of partisanship will always be kind of nasty, but at least begin to rediscover a commitment, not just to the Bill of Rights, but also to protecting the rights of people you disagree with. Mm-hmm. Also to um, rediscovering the core and fundamental principles of the founding. This, the declaration that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That, that, that rediscovering those principles of the founding, which will not in any way mean that we won't fight any less over health care, right. for example, sure. or what immigration policy will be. But to essentially say that redouble our commitment to the core principles of the founding of the country and right and left can do that, but it's going to require us to shed and reject the illiberal elements in both coalitions. And I think that that is going to be one of the core cultural projects of the next decade. And if we don't get that right, as miserable as politics is right now, as vicious and as polarized as it is, then we ain't seen nothing yet. I think that's a good place to end the conversation. David French, thank you so much for joining. Really appreciate your insight. And uh, we'll, we'll continue to track with you uh, through through this campaign cycle. Looking forward to reading uh, y- your thoughts and ideas as we move forward. 
Well, thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks. David, is, uh, how would you like folks to stay up with you? They could follow you at National Review. You're on Twitter. Is there anything uh, anything else that folks want, who want to learn more about your work can uh, check out? Yeah, you can follow me at National Review or at Time Magazine, where I'm a columnist, and Twitter at David A. French. Perfect. All right, David. Thanks. Have a good one. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed the interview uh, with David French. Uh, Love talking with him. Uh, I would encourage you to continue to follow his work. He's going to offer an important perspective, uh, I think, throughout the primary, especially when the general election heats up. uh, It's going to be so interesting to see uh, how David maintains his voice uh, in the midst of that. And I know he's just been a great sort of uh, comfort and resource to a, a lot of folks out there, even those who don't agree with him all the time. And so thank you, David, for coming on the show. All right, folks, this has been another episode of the Faith 2020 podcast. We'll be back in uh, a couple of weeks to cover all the updates get you caught up on the campaign trail. We'll have another great guest for you as we help you to see 2020 clearly through the lens of faith. Thank you so much. See you soon. Faith 2020 is produced by Pottery Studios and brought to you by the And Campaign. Learn more about the And Campaign by visiting andcampaign.org. Our producer for the show is my man, Bo York. Our guest this week was David French, and I've been your host, Michael Ware. I look forward to speaking with you again on the next episode of Faith 2020. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.